You are listening to the sermon podcast for Salem Presbyterian Church in Winston-Salem. Thanks for listening. To learn more about our church, visit salempresws.org. That's salempresws.org. We believe preaching is best when experienced as part of the larger drama of God's people gathering. Something spiritually unique happens when God's people are together. We meet each Sunday to let the liturgy shape us, to hear preaching, and to take the Lord's Supper. And these acts are more robust when done together. Join us Sunday evenings at 5 p.m. in downtown Winston-Salem at 600 Holly Avenue. Again, that's John chapter 2, verses 1 through 12. And please stand for the reading of God's word. On the third day, there was a wedding at Cana in Galilee, and the mother of Jesus was there. Jesus also was invited to the wedding with his disciples. When the wine ran out, the mother of Jesus said to him, We have no wine. And Jesus said to her, Woman, what does this have to do with me? My hour has not yet come. His mother said to the servants, Do whatever he tells you. Now there were six stone water jars there for the Jewish Jewish rites of purification, each holding 20 or 30 gallons. Jesus said to the servants, Fill the jars with water. And they filled them up to the brim. And he said to them, Now draw some out and take it to the master of the feast. So they took it. When the master of the feast tasted the water now become wine and did not know where it came from, those the servants who had drawn the water knew, the master of the feast called the bridegroom and said to him, everyone serves the good wine first, and when people have drunk freely, then the poor wine. But you have kept the good wine until now. This, the first of his signs, Jesus did at Cana in Galilee and manifested his glory. And his disciples believed in him. After this, he went down to Capernaum with his mother and his brothers and his disciples, and they stayed there for a few days. This is the word of God for the people of God. So we're starting a new sermon series uh, in a book I've never preached on. Believe it or not, I've never preached on John. I think it's daunting because it's considered by many to be the greatest book of the Bible, and um, it's just hard to approach a book like John. The way I'm going to approach it is um, you can't really cover it all unless you do like a a whole year sermon series. So I'm going to look at people's individual encounters uh, with eternal life, and um, we'll look at uh, several people and um, kind of end with a longer look at uh, the resurrection in particular. Spend a lot of time with the resurrection after, around Easter and after Easter. So what is eternal life? Um, when we hear about eternal life, we tend to think of something like the fountain of youth, something that's biological, um, something that kind of goes in, like rushes into you. Um, could be something like a gas or a vapor. That's, I, I always pictured something like that that brings you to life that you would put into a plant um, or fertilizer. But eternal life is very clearly defined in the Gospel of John. Uh, You can just turn to chapter 17. It says, this is eternal life, that they know you, Father, and that they know me. And know in the Bible is uh, 
not know about. It's not like you take a test, that kind of knowledge. It's knowing personally. So personal knowledge of the Father and the Son is eternal life. Look at John 1.1 in your bulletin. It's at the very top of the bulletin. We're going to put that in the bulletin a lot because uh, it is so important to the whole, the whole structure of John. In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. He was in the beginning with God. In him was life. That's eternal life. So life is the Word, which is the Son of God, the second person of the Trinity, who is with God, the Father. The two of them, uh, that is life. Their relationship is life. And he brings that life down to us. And we're meant to live in the presence of that life. And the first sign of eternal life in verse 11, it says the first of his signs happens at this wedding, which is really surprising that he would start at this kind of low level. It's like a miracle of manners, um, you know, like something you would find in a Jane Austen book, uh, like in Pemberley. This would be like a miracle. It would say it's like a social, socially graceful miracle. It saves embarrassment. Um, it's not a miracle that's like explosive. Very few people know about this miracle, and yet um, it is a signature of Christ. I think about Zorro, the way if you've seen Zorro or read any books about Zorro, he puts a, a Z in a wall, like he'll, he'll take his uh, rapier and carve it into a wall to say Zorro is here. And in the same way, the signature, the sign of the presence of Christ is like uh, a big X for Christ, Christus. That's the Greek word for, uh, the Greek letter for Christ. And uh, so in one sense, he's just saving this groom from a major social faux pas. In another sense, he's like, he's bringing his uh, signature eternal life into a little tiny country wedding, which is very much like him to operate in this way. He so often operates behind the scenes, still does today, always in the background, nothing that makes the headlines. And so I want to look at both uh, the wedding first and just kind of what happened there, and then kind of scale up from there to... Um, to this cosmic groom that Jesus, this story shows him to be this cosmic groom. Um, it's, a, it's a much bigger thing than just this little country wedding. So those two things, we'll start focused in on this little wedding in this tiny town of Cana that people barely know uh, where it exists, it's so small. On the third day there was a wedding, it says in verse one, probably a cousin nearby. The, the person's never named because it's not critical to the story. And they're probably not uh, very wealthy. They don't have a lot of money or else they would never have run out of wine. Because wine was a very big part of a wedding. And um, weddings were bigger than uh, any weddings today. I know people spend a lot of money on weddings, but I've never heard of a wedding that goes a week. And these weddings would sometimes go a week long. And people would, uh, would stay there. Maybe people who came from out of town might stay in other people in families' homes. And so it's, uh, it's a gigantic... Um, multiple processions, tons of singing, dancing, eating, and then especially all that is driven by the wine. You know, the wine just kind of makes all that happen and strengthen. And it just kind of builds and builds and builds. And so when you're out of wine, and this might have been early in the week, this might have been really way too soon, like the second day. And when you run out of wine at a wedding back then, uh, that was a, a, a hugely embarrassing thing. And uh, could wreck your reputation uh, for the rest of your life to run out of wine. They knew each other so well, um, and so people would have known about this groom and his family around out of wine. That was on the, that was on the groom to have the wine. So, um, it'd be, I mean, there's nothing like it today, but I thought about, somebody mentioned in the Bible study, if you got food poisoning, if all the guests got food poisoning at your wedding, 
That would just barely approximate uh, what's going on here. And that would be really bad if, if that happened at your wedding. <laughs> All the people found like the food was rancid or <clears throat> if you didn't have like nearly enough food or tables, that would just begin to approximate what's going on here. So Jesus is essentially rescuing a, um, a cousin from a social nightmare. That's, that's on one level what's going on. Uh, it says in verse 3, when the wine ran out, uh, Mary got very anxious. It doesn't say that, uh, but she did, and she got very passive-aggressive. It doesn't say that either, but you can tell uh, the way that she, she never makes a direct request to her son, um, but she definitely puts the pressure on him just by saying to him, they have no wine. And uh, he could have responded, okay, it's a fact, true, but that's, she's not stating a fact. She's, she's making an indirect request. You need to do something about this. This is, this is on you. And so he gently checks her, and he does check her, although maybe not as harshly as it sounds, but it's, it's a friendly reminder of, his, of her place in his life. Um, and he says, woman, this is verse 4, uh, and woman is, is more polite than it sounds. So it's, uh, it's not rude. It sounds very rude. Uh, I would never say it to my mom, but, um, and you really shouldn't either. But this, this is what he says to Mary in the garden of uh, Gethsemane at the resurrection. So it's not as rude as it sounds. What does this have to do with me? Um, and what he's basically reminding her is he's about his father's business. And that his business is not uh, driven by any, any human being, even his mom, who he loves so much. So he's, he's essentially just kind of putting her in, in the right place, proper place in his life, and saying, I've got a lot bigger things going on here. But then she says, she's totally unoffended, which is amazing, because she's been publicly criticized. But she's also totally undaunted. So she just says to all of the people around, uh, do whatever he tells you. Like, she's so confident that he's going to do it anyway. And she knows uh, her son, and she knows his... Uh, his heart, and that he really can't help himself whenever there's a lot of need around. So she, she, see, she knows him well, probably the way he cared for his, his dad when his dad was dying, um, Joseph, who was much older than most dads, and uh, he probably saw, she knew the way he cared for you know, his younger siblings and, and played with them when they were little, and she knows the way he is and the, how much he cares about even things like this. And so... She says to the servants, do whatever he tells you. And then he starts moving fast. And I love just how domestic the miracle is and how ordinary. And it's just very much in, in the realm of the typical. And I just, I don't know exactly how he got these servants to do this, but they're transporting a lot of water from somewhere into these gigantic purification jars. Uh, it says in verse 7, uh, he says, basically, those, those six water jars, you know, how much do they hold? And the servants say 150 gallons total. And so he's like, okay, let me think about this. And maybe he sets up some kind of assembly line where they're passing uh, the water down. But it's a ton of water. And the um, servants don't really know what's going to happen. So they feel like they're spinning their wheels. They could easily have just quit or been really uh, grumbling or complained. Uh, what is he doing? Why are we putting water? There's a need for wine. They're, they're probably really panicked. So they're going way out on a limb here, but they just keep hauling the water. You know, 150 gallons. Imagine like a milk uh, jug, a gallon of milk, and 150 of those. They've got to take the water from wherever it is in the well or something and put it in the purification jars, and they don't even know if anything's going to happen when they get in the jars. He probably didn't tell them what's going to happen. So they're just moving all this water around, 
And uh, they're way out on a limb. And then he tells them in verse 8, okay, now draw some out and take it to your boss, who's the master of the feast. He's like the wine master. And um, this guy could fire them if it goes wrong. So uh, imagine the poor servant who has to take that first cup, uh, that first little uh, sample of wine to the to the master of the banquet. Um, this is not the groom. This is the guy the groom hired to do the wine. And this guy is the one who pays all the servants. So the servant, you know, with a trembling hand, takes this cup of wine to the master, probably not really sure how good it is. They probably don't even know exactly what great wine is if they, haven't, if, if they don't have a lot of money. But they take the wine to the master. In verse 9, the master says, what is this? And he calls the groom over. And he says, you waited to serve this till now? You know, I can hear him just kind of exploding. Like, uh, I can't believe you did this. Like, who does this? Nobody does this. And, you know, what he's basically saying is, um, at this point in a wedding feast, when people have, a, have had a lot to drink and are inebriated, um, most people bring out the worst wine. And I don't know a lot about wine, so I thought a box of Franzia might be an example of what people would bring out. But that might be an insult to you. So... Uh, just know I say that not knowing wine, but at, at this point, it would be very cheap alcohol that people would bring out, because there's no need, if, the, if they're inebriated already, to, um, to serve the best wine. But he serves the best wine, and uh, the master says in verse 10, you have kept the good wine until now, basically implying you care about wine itself more than appearances. You care about uh, the thing itself, the goodness of the created thing itself, how delightful and delicious and wonderful it is. And, uh, and the, the master is just blown away by this. It seems like he's wasting money. Um, and you know that 30 years later, after this event, everybody's talking about the groom. They're not talking about Jesus because he didn't let anybody know. So uh, this, all the credit goes to the groom. He's known forever as this guy who, um, he just broke the bank and he, came, he brought out the best wine at the end and, He's, uh, nobody can figure him out. He's like this mystery man. Now, when they published the Gospel of John, suddenly, like, everything changed. And uh, people realized, oh, okay, that's, that's what was going on there. But Jesus doesn't need to take any credit at this point. He gives all the credit to the groom. So that's the, that's the country wedding. Now, I think there, there's a deeper reason that he turned uh, the water into the best wine. Uh, it's not just to keep that wedding going. All that, that's important to him. And and obviously, good, fine things are very important to God, to Jesus. And so we, often, we always need to balance, like, yes, we need to be, um, live a very simple life, uh, a frugal life, a life of generosity, where we don't overly indulge ourselves. That's a very important part of uh, the New Testament ethic. There's also uh, this, obviously, coming out of this, there's this thing where we're meant to enjoy the good things God give us, uh, gives us with thanksgiving. We're not supposed to call anything evil. Anything uh, that God made evil, uh, Paul says that, but receive it with thanksgiving, and it's good for you. And throughout the Bible, uh, God just uh, exalts in the good things, the delightful things, the delicious things that he made, unnecessarily good, decadent, you know, over the top. So um, there's a lot going on with that wine. In Amos, uh, in the Old Testament, the prophet Amos, who's known to be like this uh, kind of fiery prophet of righteousness, like let justice roll down like waters, Righteousness like an ever-flowing stream. You wouldn't think Amos would be the guy that would love wine. But Amos 9.13 says, The time is surely coming when the mountains shall drip sweet wine. And that prophecy, I think, is God 
telling Amos, I'm, I'm going to invade this world of mine and bring, uh, bring in uh, the best wine into that world for the sake of a wedding. And it's not just this wedding. It's a, it's a much bigger wedding. So I love verse 11 where it says, this was the first sign of his glory. So in other words, this is signature of Jesus. This, this is a, a signature of his glory that it's so generous. He receives no applause. He doesn't need that. There's no flash. There's no uh, Hollywood CGI. You know, if Hollywood were making this uh, into a movie, they would show the thing, the water turning into wine. We don't even see any of that. It's all substance, no flash. We don't know exactly when it happened or how it happened, uh, but we know that he wanted joy to continue to flow. We know that at the highest level of reality, he wanted there to be joy, the, the best wine. And he says in John 15, 11, I came that my joy may be in you and that your joy may be full. And that's not just spiritual joy. That's not just a joy that has uh, no connection to the material world. That's joy in every facet of joy. I came that my joy may be in you and that your joy may be full. Uh, when I was reading this passage, I, uh, I thought about this, uh, this piece by Gustav Holst that's called The Planets. And if you know about the planets, the, my favorite of the planets is Jupiter. It's like a seven-minute song, and I would highly recommend you download it. Listen to it as you read the story. And it's called, uh, he called it, Hulse called it Jupiter, the bringer of joy, or a joviality, or jolly. And one, uh, one person writing about that piece says, uh, it's a piece of music that signifies happiness and abundance, expansion, and a disposition of mirth. And if you listen to it, you'll hear why. Um, it sounds like a, a jolly king, like walking down a hall and singing. Um, it's a beautiful song. And uh, I think it's very important to ask yourself this question, um, wh whether you believe, uh, how much you believe in Christianity or not, or God or not. Um, you know, we generally all believe there's something almighty or omnipotent or greatest or highest. You know, the, the, the um, final reality, there's something, it's the ground of all being or whatever you want to call it. And we and we wonder what that's like, and the question I think we have to ask ourselves uh, reading this passage is, do you think that that uh, ultimate thing, that ultimate reality, is uh, this jo joyous, overflowing father that, uh, that is um, showing off his feasting son who's going around um, bringing uh, wine to the earth? And I think that the answer is probably you don't. And I know that I don't. I don't see that. I don't see final reality as that way. And it's really hard when you look at what's going on in the world. It's very hard sometimes to think that way. I'm the type of nervous uh, person that gets nervous when people are having a lot of fun, um, when there's a party going on, when there's a lot of drinking or dancing. Those, fa those things feel secular or worldly to me. Um, not necessarily inherently sinful, but certainly not something um, that should be uh, part of spiritual life, not spiritual life. Whereas where, when I think about reading the Bible or praying or meditating, you know, or singing, singing Christian songs, those are spiritual. So you've got the, the secular over here, you've got the spiritual over here. But in Matthew 19, 11, uh, Jesus says, uh, the Son of Man came eating and drinking. The Son of Man came eating and drinking. And he did it so much that his detractors said, uh, look at him, a glutton and a drunkard. So there was so much eating and drinking. It wasn't just a little bit. It was so much that 
the Pharisees thought he was, uh, he was a glutton, which mean he, he means he ate way too much, they thought. And they even called him a drunkard, that he drank way too much. And it might have been because of this wedding. I'm not sure why he got this reputation, but it does seem like if you read the gospel, he's, he's often at a meal or at some kind of feast. He tells a lot of parables about feasts. The prodigal son, they kill a fattened calf. All these parables about feasts. And um, he's, there's something that when, even when he was uh, in his places of sorrow, even uh, when he was encountering death, uh, when he was encountering deep suffering and brokenness, there was something inside uh, that was always uh, this just anticipation of joy that um, he, was, he was waiting for this thing. There was something driving him forward. Hebrews said, for the joy set before him, he, he endured the cross. And I think that the key to that in this passage in verse 4, where you see the source, uh, the engine of his joy, uh, it's, it's surprising, but he says, my hour has not yet come. And I imagine him like closing his eyes when he said that and visualizing, you know, the hour has not yet come, but I can feel it coming. I can feel it coming. Um, it's like... I'm, I'm even be beginning to live it right now as I think about this wedding. I think that's one of the main things that motivated him to do this miracle at this wedding. And if you ask, well, what is that hour? It's cryptic. It doesn't say what his hour was. But if you uh, read the rest of John, you, you figure out what the hour was. Um, it says in John 17, 1, Father, the hour has come. Glorify your son that he may glorify you. And you might think that would be the hour where he would have uh, wiped out the Romans or taken over the temple or uh, got up on David's throne and began to rule, but that's not what, that's not what that hour was. Uh, the, right before, right, he prayed that right before he went to the cross. And so the remarkable thing is that the hour that he's talking about when he says, uh, my hour has not yet come, he's talking to Mary, he's thinking about this hour, it's, it's the hour that he shows his passion for his bride. That's why we call it the passion of Christ, like that Mel Gibson movie. It's the passion of Christ. He wants her to finally see just how much he burns, how, how much zeal he has, or jealousy even. In John 2.17, just a few verses after this story, when he's cleansing the temple, I've always loved the story of him cleansing the temple. He's driving out. Uh, so he's got this miracle of mirth here. The miracle of wrath is next, where he's driving out the money changers. And it says his zeal and his jealousy for his bride consumed him. That's why he was doing that, because he wanted to purify Israel. He wanted to make her beautiful. And so the hour is the hour where he dies. He, he suffers and dies. And it's obviously more than literally an hour, but it's that period of time. It's that part of the story where all the signs, you know, the, the Gospel of John is about these different seven signs, and they all focus on Golgotha on Calvary, on the, on the place where he was hung, um, humiliated, utterly humiliated. But that's the hour that he was looking forward to. Um, it's like in the, the Death Star, the beams come together, you know, and, the, and it shoots that Death Star ray. And when all those, those, those beams, all those signs come together uh, on him, and he's destroyed, and he says, that's, the, that's my finest hour. And the Father, too, because he's praying to the Father, and the Father... Uh, eagerly wants to answer that prayer, that he wants, to, he wants his son to be glorified. And so uh, the energy that we need to rejoice more and complain less 
and grumble less and see the, uh, the universe as less against us, like I can never catch a break kind of thing. Um, you know, as a middle-aged empty nester, I can feel the pull of being like a, a misanthrope or a hermit or a curmudgeon or somebody just grumbles a lot. People in my stage of life start to move into that sometimes, and I feel the pull, and I need to think about this hour and the God who I worship and the signature sign of Christ. This is the, the sign of signs, um, and where I think about how he, met, he took a thousand bottles of the best wine as a sign of his joy, as a sign of anticipation of his wedding. You know, there was never any wine before this that was better, and there was never any wine since this time that's been better. This is the finest of wine ever made. And he did it because he was looking forward to this uh, union with his bride, where eternal life, the, the love between the Father and the Son, come down to us on earth and fill this earth with his presence. Matthew 26, 28 says, This wine is the blood of my covenant. This is when Jesus is serving the Lord's Supper. This wine is the blood of my covenant, he said, poured out for the forgiveness of your sins. I will not drink of this wine again until the day when I drink it new with you in my Father's kingdom. So this is um, our little appetizer, our little foretaste of the wine that uh, we will one day have in the great wedding banquet that will go on and on and on in the kingdom of God. And as we take uh, the bread and drink from the cup, um, let's try to imagine um, just the, the zeal, the jealous uh, love and passion of Christ uh, for us, for his bride that he felt at that, at that wedding. Um, on the night that he was betrayed, and on the night that um, we sent him to that cross, and he knew that we would do that, he, he knew that uh, we would betray him, and that was part of the passion, is to show the full um, fury of his passion for us. Even as we betrayed him, uh, it was on that night, in that hour, that he said, this is my body broken for you, uh, even as you betray me. Just so that we would know there's nothing we could ever do that would break his love. Because if, if he, if, if he uh, loved us then, then when is he not going to love us? That was our worst moment. Uh, he said, this is my blood shed for you. So whenever you eat the bread and drink from the cup, he said, uh, you will be proclaiming my death, my hour, my glory, until I come back. So if you are um, not sure what to do right now, uh, when I used to come to church and didn't believe, I didn't know what to do with the Lord's Supper. So feel no pressure to partake. We're glad you're here. Nobody's going to be looking if you don't come up here. Um, and so, uh, you know, if, if, you're, if you're not really yet convinced this is the true story of reality, uh, then it's, it's really, uh, we don't want to make you uh, fake it or kind of go through the motions uh, or do something that you don't really believe in. But also, if, you're, um, if you just barely believe it, it doesn't take much. It's his passion for you, not your love for him that matters. Um, and this is love, not that we loved him, but that he loved us and gave himself for us. So it's not about your passion for him. You might feel very dry and uh, very worldly right now, and yet um, that's no reason not to partake. So come and partake if you feel that love. And if those who are serving with me will come up here, I'll, I'll pray for this. Uh, Father, I pray that uh, you would um, purify our hearts with a love um, for you. Help, help us uh, mostly to experience your love. 
your passion for us, uh, your heart for us. To know that you're a God who is joyous, overflowing, bounteous God, uh, a God who um, loves to, uh, to give good gifts to your children. And uh, we pray you do this. Remember, we love these rascals.